actually, if they'd sat in any of the existing venues on the street for a week at different times of the day with a diary, they would probably know that there just isn't enough footfall. It's not about finding the cheapest because if contractor A are the cheapest but they think it's going to take 12 weeks, you'll pretty quickly realise that they won't work out to be the cheapest. We basically have the entire store in one container. One container arrives, it has the bar, the flooring, the wall panels, the equipment, the furniture, the lamps, every single thing down to the avocado knife. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Coffee Business Magazine, Fifth Wave. Many of us dream of opening a cafe. Indeed, many of our listeners have probably already embarked upon that journey. But the road to opening, designing, and then building a cafe concept is far from straightforward. You'll need to convince landlords, hire designers, select contractors, predict footfall and revenue, and all of this comes even before you've put a lick of paint on the walls. With all this detail required, the reality is it's not always the fun experience we dreamt of when deciding to create a cafe space. But most experienced operators will tell you that getting the process right at the outset is often more important than your choice of espresso machine, the coffee roaster you choose, or even the color of the walls. So in this episode, we'll be investigating the process of designing and rolling out a hospitality venue by speaking with two hugely experienced operators, Valdemir Halby of Joe and the Juice and Mark Saw of Redemption Roasters. But to start off, we're speaking with Anna Burles, CEO and co-founder of Run for the Hills, an award-winning creative design house specializing in hospitality concepts and branding. Run for the Hills is also the talented team behind one of my favorite London hospitality spaces, Bondi Green, a large and sumptuous all-day venue at Paddington Basin on Regent's Canal. The whole process of designing a space this intricate is extremely detailed, and Anna is going to take us through each and every step. Okay, welcome, Anna. Thanks very much for having me. What are the steps to designing and building out a coffee shop or a restaurant venue? So there are various different stages. Stage one is kind of strategy and analysis and the briefing stage. So That could be, for example, a client ringing us up and saying, we're pitching for a site. We actually want to win a site, but there's loads of other operators that also want it because it's really cool and it's in Carnaby or it's in Soho or whatever. We need to prove to the landlord that we are the right operator, that we've got the right offer and that we've got a really cool design idea for the space. So sometimes we'll be involved at that stage doing some space planning, also to deliver the number of covers that it might be able to give as a commercial operation. And obviously different clients have different needs on that front. Some are absolutely, if it can't deliver, for example, let's take a small venue in Soho, for example. If it can't deliver 50 covers, it doesn't run. So it's really important to do that creative design, spatial planning, even before bidding for the site to know whether it can run in the first place. So we help clients develop a really beautiful landlord pack that sells the concept, the team, the offer, the investment, the commercial objectives to the landlord to try and just be the front runner for the site to win the site in the first place. So that would be stage pre-stage one, actually. It's not even a REBA stage yet. It's actually scoping, isn't it? And an analysis. But we do lots of that. So we sometimes do some really early QSing as well for 
QSing being quantity surveying, is that right? So, yes. So the official QS on a project is obviously not us. You go to QS school and you, or PM, project management QS school for many years. We're not that. But the things that we can help with as an interior design firm are costing, from the best of our knowledge, from lots of previous projects and experience of costing, is an idea, for example, uh, provisional sums for the cost of the floor tiles, cost per square metre, the cost of um, timber flooring, the cost of dado panelling, decorative lights, pendants, wall lights, floor lamps, table lamps. Okay, so these are very top-level figures, but for the decorative elements within a scheme on this site, that delivers 50 to 75 to 100 seats. That's the damage. And then obviously, the things we can't necessarily cost would be the cost of the actual joinery or the construction of the bar. But again, we can help a little bit just based on previous tenders that we might have been involved with or had sight of via clients. And that's when sometimes they will then go to the QS, the actual official QS, to look at more of the build costs or the, you know, the amount of bricks that might be required to do the build out if we're thinking of new partitions. So there's an awful lot of guesstimating early on that we do, that we recommend that clients do rather than waiting for the tender process, which comes months down the line. And what if that tender then throws out a figure that's just gulp, we don't have the money? Or it's a bigger investment than this site can deliver back in terms of profitability. So we just try and help as much as we can, not to just be creative designers, but to really help on the costing front. Okay, so we're at stage one, Reba strategy analysis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're at stage one and we are formalising the nitty gritty of the brief. So we've done all of that preamble. But we're saying, okay, let's walk through the space. Let's make sure we've got the key stakeholders if we can there, front of house, the chef, or, you know, the barista, the technical person that's going to be running either the roastery or coffee side, who's running the team. Having walk around the space, looking at the previous kind of sketch floor plan layout that we might have done, and just interrogating it from a flow perspective. So thinking about how are the customers going to use this space? How are we going to get them in? You know, you have to think about how you're going to funnel them in. Is there a central location and how do we designate or define that? How are they going to get to the toilets? What's this customer journey there? What's going to be the golden seat within the space? What's going to be the one that everyone wants to sit at and how can we make that a real event? And what are the secondary or third kind of tiers of of seating within the space? And hopefully, if you've got the technical operator there or the operations person, you're, you're then thinking about the staff flow. How are the team going to use the space? What's going to madden them? How do you clear the tables and where do the dirty plates and cups, where do they go? So you're thinking through absolutely every single bit of nitty gritty about the operation from a customer and a staff flow. And that's really defining the return brief, the detailed return brief, which we would then ping back to the clients and say, shout if we've forgotten anything, misunderstood, run it by your GM, your general manager, run it by anybody else that you think should have an eye on what this is so that we've really got a rock solid brief before we start the intricate CAD spatial planning for the final layout, including all of the elements of back of house as well as front of house. The staff has returned the brief. What's next? So once we've done all of that, we crack into two things and they are CAD design. So the spatial planning, the general arrangement floor plan 
and also the initial look and feel ideas because they inform each other. So let's say you've done a nice design, you've got your bar, your cocktail bar or your coffee counter or the coffee's at one end of the counter and eat at, dining is down at the other end. Maybe you've got a little service, just drinks bar or a beer taps on another space, but you need to include all of your wash-ups area, all of the sort of technical back of house kitchen and bar stuff. So we will work on our layout of everything an area for the bar, a rough kind of design of the shape of it. But then we ping that DWG, which is the architectural file, not the PDF. We'll ping that over to whoever is the specialist kitchen or stainless steel consultant on the project. We don't design that. But one will have been appointed, hopefully by that point, so that we've got our GA to a certain point and then we export the DWG and it gets given over to the specialists that need to then put their nuts and bolts into the floor plan. Every fridge every wash-up, every speed rail for the bar, just to see what fits and whether the, the footprint of the bar and the shape of the bar that we've given works. Does it deliver all of the kit that the guys need? Okay, so we've got our designs, the space is laid out. And then we are looking at the look and feel. So we will start with sometimes a Pinterest board, just a very quick and dirty to just explore potential ideas before committing to full mood boards or look and feel. Lots of mood boards, which you might have by area, by zone. Here's an overall look and feel for the space. But then let's break it down. What does the counter look like? What does the counter area look like? What's the floor? What are the wall finishes? Do we have an idea of directions for lights, decorative lights? Do we have any art in the space? Are we going to create any or any murals or neon signs? We go through various rounds of that, honing it down to a kind of light conceptual direction we then start to sort of illustrate the floor plans with the ideas to try and help communicate our ideas to a variety of different people we must be getting pretty close to engaging the builders now and yes we're starting to talk to contractors and there could be all kinds of contractors so sometimes it's a single one-stop shop quite an established firm that has all the different trades in-house joinery electrical plumbing sometimes however the clients might have a really good M&E person that they just trust, who's just done extract really well on their other venues and they just want to use them. They also might have a great electrical contractor who's just stayed in touch with them. So effectively, the next stages are about meeting potential contractors and understanding from them the level of detail that they might need for the next stages of developed design, which is Reaper Stage 3 and Reaper Stage 4 is technical design. So you're really starting to elevate up the walls. So you're not just working in floor plan anymore. You're elevating all of the key set pieces within the space. So you're elevating the bar, the counter, with every single detail of the front bar, the back bar, all of the joinery details that will then be passed over to, again, either the main contractor if they've got joinery in-house or it goes to an independent joinery firm, to quote, I feel we're getting close to the build. We are getting close to the build. So you've developed all of the lighting details. How far are they dropping from the ceiling, the wall lights? You've developed all of the joinery pack for all of the counters, the wait stations, service stations, host stations, all of that. The kit list has been put together. We've also specified all of the materials and finishes by then. And it all gets put together into a contractor pack. So a dossier of information, which effectively is 
the tender pack. So our information that we create goes via a project manager if there is one. There often isn't one. So it really does just come from us. It's a dossier and it gets sent out to tender to various contractors who come back with initially an RFI, which is a request for information, which is traditionally a sort of Excel spreadsheet of queries saying, can you just expand a little bit more on this? Or we've looked at the drawing of the bar and it's curved. It's a horseshoe shape. That might be quite expensive. Could it be faceted instead of fully curved? So it's an angle and it looks still curved. But, you know, they they will ask us questions like that and we problem solve together to find ways to keep the spirit of the vision, but at an affordable, sensible cost. Once you've chosen those contractors, how long from there does it take to get this cafe or restaurant ready to open? So I'd say the design process can take anything from two to three to four months, depending on the size of it. And then when there's a tender, it takes about a month. You've done the tender, you've agreed the pricing, you're hitting go on buying stuff, the tiles, the counters, the furniture, you're hitting go on buying all that stuff. I'd say it's anywhere between sort of two to six months would probably be the average. But others where the finish is, you know, it's, it's, there's more in the design, there's more fitted beautiful stuff, which often is fabricated off-site and then brought in and scribed in on-site, but they're more like kind of the four to six months. And then obviously some overrun, some overrun, and sometimes it's supply chain, sometimes it's contractors just taking longer. But yeah, I'd say as an average, it would be the two to six months, but at the smaller kind of end, the sort of more cafe with a little bit of food, it would be the six to sort of 12 weeks would be a, a scrunchy but achievable timescale. Okay, so the whole process for a restaurant, cafe could be anywhere from right at the very beginning to the very end. It could be something between three to four months up to 12 months. Yeah, I'd say probably yeah, three to five and definitely up to 12. What are your recommendation to any person out there that wants to build a cafe, but build a restaurant? And with all that experience that you've got, before they start this process, Other than hiring a company like yourselves, what are the three or four things they absolutely have to consider before even taking that leap into taking possession of a cafe or restaurant and expecting to build something magnificent? Number one, budgeting and estimating. Even without someone like us, if they're going to be opening a a coffee shop, you need a coffee machine, grinders, the scale, the fridges, you, you, you know, the bottle wash, the sink. Just add it up and it'll come to a figure. Even if it's a rough you know, go online, estimate as much as you can so that you know the damage. Um, And then going back to the site, look at what it can deliver. Getting the site right, actually. So you know there are always those wonderful streets that are super cool. There's one in Notting Hill and it's called All Saints Road and I absolutely love it. I used to live near it, but it's so doomed for lots of venues. They open up, they look great, they've got a nice offer, but it's just it's not Portobello Road and the footfall just doesn't come there. They don't come there. They think they will, but they don't come there. And actually, if they'd sat in any of the existing venues on the street for a week at different times of the day with a diary, they would probably know that there just isn't enough footfall. So research the site because it can be the best thing in the world. But unless it's the new hotspot, just getting the right footfall there uh, can mean it fails. So you've spent all this money and it just wasn't the right site. Great. Well, that's a fantastic way to leave it. Thanks so much, Anna, for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. You're very welcome. It's been great to be with you. As we've just heard, there are so many steps to selecting, designing and building a successful cafe space. 
The detailed processes outlined by Anna will serve any great coffee operator, from the smallest cafe to a multinational chain. And I particularly liked her final piece of advice for small operators. Calculate even approximately what your cafe fit-out will cost, item by item. Work out its seating capacity, and finally ensure that the outlet can deliver the footfall you require, even if it means sitting there and counting the passers-by for a week. So we've seen the process from the perspective of a design agency, but what does the process look like from the other side of the counter in the shoes of the cafe operator? To answer this, we speak with Mark Saw, head of property for London-based Redemption Roasters, a multi-site operator. Mark has a commercial real estate background and will be leading the opening of two additional redemption sites this year, bringing the total to 12. Welcome, Mark. Thanks very much, Jeffrey. Good to be here. I wonder if you could walk us through the steps to finding that right location that you want to build a great coffee shop on. What, what's, the, what's the key there? Yeah, it's pretty exhaustive in terms of process because we look at a huge amount of vacant and also still operational sites. And there's a lot of gut feeling that goes with it. And there's a lot of background knowledge on the neighborhoods. So to have a team of us looking at those sites in particular is really handy because we've all got different opinions and it's brilliant when we all meet in the middle, but often we don't. And that's good too, because it means that we're not wasting time looking at things that just aren't going to work for us. Um, it doesn't always work out. And so you move on to the next one. you got the right site, good location, plenty of footfall. How do you look at, you know, what are you going to put into that shop? From an operational perspective, it's relatively straightforward because, of course, we know what equipment we need. We know how much space the team need. And with ongoing conversations with the designers, we know what sort of covers we can accommodate and whether, of course, we're doing outside seating. So a lot of it is dictated to us by experience and also the physicality of it. You know, will it fit? What's going to fit? And is it on one floor or two or three, you know? I'm hearing that number of covers and capacities are really critical consideration. Is that right? Or Size is really crucial, but that doesn't actually limit us. What it does is it gives us the opportunity to look at what we can do operationally. So, for example, if it's a small site in a train station, for example, the majority of the trade there is just going to be grab and go. And we can tailor the operation to suit that. And so we'll come up with fit-out design that best maximizes the space whilst it still actually delivers our product and gives us, you know, a really good shop front to work from. So how many sites, how many frogs might you have to kiss before you've decided <laughs> on a site? I suppose maybe half a dozen. And if there's a really positive buzz around one, then we'll start to think about, okay, so let's maybe offer on this and we'll see where it goes. What practically is the lead time from a founder site and that shop's open. It's difficult to put a, a number on it in terms of weeks because the legals can sometimes take far longer than you'd like. And so you have to allow eight, 10, sometimes 12 weeks for the legals to take place and for everything to be signed off. And so that's really your window of opportunity to get your design done because, you know, you do have access then. So you can have as many visits as you like. And so as a team, we'll spend a lot of time in the taking measurements, photographs, making videos, so that it's fully documented 
So it sounds like you have an internal team that do the design? Yeah, so we have a couple of designers that we like to use who are external, and then we do a certain amount of the design internally as well. So a marketing team incorporate a designer, and I quite like to dabble in it myself, although at a very low level. Um, I like to play around with it because I really enjoy it. Now, you've engaged your designers. <laughs> the lease is signed. What happens then? My next challenge is to choose a contractor. And so generally speaking, I'll go to three contractors and I'll share exactly the same information. I'll spend exactly the same amount of time with each of them on site and I'll ask and answer exactly the same questions so that hopefully you end up with three really consistent quotes. And it's, it's, it's actually harder than it sounds because there are so many moving parts. Every contractor's got a different way of working. So there's, there can often be quite a big gap so when you've got those costs back and I need them back immediately, um, it's then a case of going through them and comparing them and just cross-referencing rates, really. And then it's rationalising who you want to work with. Um, it's not about finding the cheapest because if contractor A are the cheapest but they think it's going to take 12 weeks, you'll pretty quickly realise that they won't work out to be the cheapest. Because if I want to do it in four to six weeks, that means I've got six weeks where I'm not open and we're still paying these guys to do the job. So you can almost add on six weeks of lost trade onto the build cost. So it's a, it's a tricky balance to get right. Is it possible to hold the builders to a, a, a time? Yeah, so you obviously have a program. These are relatively small jobs and you can start to have a contract that include like liquidated damages if they fail to meet the target completion date. But it's never actually been necessary with me mm. because I live and breathe the project as soon as it starts. Mm-hmm. As soon as there are guys on site, I'm there every day just being a nuisance and they will finish on time yeah. or early. Oh, yeah. very good. Yeah, yeah I'll do so, whatever it takes. <laughs> so it's not about the money. There is definitely about the time to deliver. What else is important to you when you're choosing a contractor? An existing good relationship is really essential and also building on that relationship during the costing phase of the project. You get to know a lot about a contractor when you start talking about the costs of things. They'll show their hand pretty quickly. The thing that I've always found to be really, really key is ask loads of questions and also ask the really awkward questions because no one's got you know, a bottomless pit of money. And we're very cost conscious when it comes to fit outs. And I respect and appreciate that everyone has to make their margin just as much as we do. But there's a limit, obviously. And it is a case of shopping around. And hopefully you can find a balance with the right contractor where they respect what you're trying to do and understand what you're trying to do. And it's it really is a two-way street. And I think that I'm a really good client because I'll support the contractor, but I'm really hands-on. Yeah. But that's you'll lose control of a project pretty quickly. Let's unpack some of the benefits of being very hands-on. I get that it's great for you, but what situations can you avoid? What's the value to being hands-on? I think that the main thing is that you're dealing with property and you never know what you're going to find until you go in and start the demo side of the project. And so... 
with the best tool in the world, with the best surveys carried out, et cetera, et cetera, you might find that there's a massive gaping hole in the floor uh, and it's been covered over with some pretty rudimentary materials. And so that will have to be put right. Or you might find that the wiring in the whole building needs to be ripped out and upgraded. So, yeah, you're always going to get a lot of surprises. And the thing is, if you're not hands-on, those contractors on site are going to make make decisions that perhaps you'd prefer to be consulted on. So, for example, if they find that, I don't know, the only waste pipe available in the whole unit is in this position, yeah. so we're going to have to, that's all we can do is just use that. Yeah. I'm really keen that the plumbing particularly is designed in such a way that it works for us and it's going to be 100% reliable and that waste isn't going to work for us. So let's talk about an alternative solution um, where we can actually make the best of it. If you're not on site, you might get a text message say, oh, we found this, so we can't do that, and that would be that. And they might not do anything for three days, and if you didn't spot that message, yeah. they're waiting. And so you, you can lose time, uh, which is going to increase your costs, um, and you might end up compromising the design unnecessarily. Just finally, everyone's talking about inflation at the moment. What are the keys to keeping costs low? If you're a recommendations to small people out there that might be building their first cafe, what's the real the real key to keeping costs low? I've yet to work out a way of keeping it low, but to keep it as low as possible and in control, it, one of the rules that I absolutely live by is no variations. You've got a design, you've got a scope, stick to it. Because... As soon as you start changing things or designing it as you go or thinking halfway through, hang on, let's do this instead of that, your costs are going to go through the roof. And the contractor isn't going to mind at all. They might end up being on site a couple more weeks and they're going to have to order more materials, etc. which, of course, there's margin on those. So, yes, yeah, stick to your scope and stick to the design. Don't press the button until you're 100% confident that it's the right design. And, yeah, go with it. And be creative about materials as well and ask the contractors, is nice, but it's too expensive. What are the alternatives? I think a lot of times people are a little bit intimidated by the process because there's a lack of understanding of what's available. And so, yeah, it's always worth asking, what about reclaimed? What about recycled? What about repurposed? Why does it have to be new and why does it have to come from the other side of the world? Is there not something we can find locally that's a bit more sustainable and more economical. What would a budding coffee shop owner have to pay to, what's the range of prices you have to pay to get a site built in a city like London? God, that's a really good question. It's so easy if it's like an office fit out or something because you can just put a square footage rate against it and it's mm. easy. But it's a bit different with something like a coffee shop or anything hospitality based. But um I suppose if you had like a thousand square foot coffee shop, for example, it's fair to say that you could probably do it for a hundred pounds a square foot. Okay. You'd have to be pretty creative and you'd have to be really strict and yeah. on it from the word go. Equipment, for example, that's yeah. hugely expensive. Yeah. That is, that's a big ticket item straight away. Yeah. In addition to, we cover cost there. Other tips for novices out there wanting to create their own coffee shops. In terms of the design and build process, what would you, what advice would you give to any coffee shop owner that wants to go out there and, and do magic? 
don't rush. Just don't rush because mistakes will happen and they'll come at you really quickly. And and there's always pound signs after those things. Yeah, I think it's worth taking your time, making sure that all of the right pieces are in place before you start committing and take the time to find the right contractor. I think there's this perception that you you just need to get everything done really quickly. And I've got the confidence to do that because I've been doing this for some time. But if it's your first time, just complete on the legals as late as possible to give yourself that lead-in time to get all of your pieces in place. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Mark offered some excellent practical tips, and I think it's worth repeating some of them. Be hands-on, get quotes from at least three contractors, ask awkward questions, take your time, and finally, save money by not deviating from the plan. Now, we've just explored how a London-based cafe group approaches the design and build of its cafes, but what would an operator need to consider if they were rolling out not two London sites this year, but 60 new sites across the world. To find out, we finish by speaking with Valdemir Halby, Chief Growth Officer at Joe and the Juice. Valdemir joined the Danish cafe brand six years ago and oversaw the rollout of 60 new stores across the US. Welcome, Valdemir. Thank you very much. So I understand that Joe and Juice have roughly 300 stores around the world. Yeah, we have 325 stores in 15 countries, so quite a scale at this point. And how many do you expect to roll out over the next year? Well, you can say we've been growing with 40% year on year from 2009 to 19. So we've been on a fantastic growth journey and of course COVID slowed down the growth, but we're definitely back in growth mode. And this year we're doing around 30 stores, but we do want to increase that toward 40, 50, 60 stores a year. Okay, so let's get into the topic of design and planning. Can you walk me through the steps you take to open a store from the moment you've identified a site you like? Well, I think actually there's two key aspects to to rolling out, right? One is to actually select the site, which is probably by far the most important thing, because if you select the wrong site, it doesn't matter how good you are at building and opening stores, you will probably never have success. And then the next thing is to have the rollout machine in place to to open up stores on time and in in high quality. I think the first one is quite crucial for us. We're not a... We're not just a one-country local player. We are truly global. We are having growth in in 16 countries every year, meaning that we have a team in place, one in the US, one in Paris, one in London, one in Nordics, being out there on the streets, finding new stores, and doing it in a way where it feels like we understand every neighborhood, where we understand how customers, they spend their time and how they like to have their coffee in the morning. I think that's very important for us to select the right stores. When, when that's done and we have found a site, I think then it becomes a much more of a machine, right? Now we need to do everything from site surveys to design, build, and shipping in the equipment, which in these days, of course, is definitely more challenging. But there we, we are relying on both great internal parties and external parties. We're working with suppliers that covers the entire world, but also local teams to facilitate the growth. And it's really a, a mix between extremely strong partners, extremely detailed forecasting and processes, and, uh, and a lot of planning and the constant, I would say, problem solving, because that is just a part of, of the business. And doing it globally, is that machine process more or less a formula that you can adapt for different countries? Or are there big differences between countries when you're trying to roll out a certain amount of stores in a certain country? 
Yeah, I would definitely say that our setup is different. We have we've created a global scalable platform because we are in so many markets and tomorrow we'll be opening a store in Paris and next year next next week we'll be in, in Miami. So we need a global box to roll out. And I think I definitely our model would be different if we were only growing in the east coast of New York of the US, for example. So the way we've done is we work with some turnkey partners where we basically have the entire store in one container. One container arrives, it has the bar, the flooring, the wall panels, the equipment, the furniture, the lamps, every single thing down to the avocado. So I think that gives us really that global scale. We can send that to anywhere in the world. And we have designed our bars, for example, in a way where the bars will be basically globally applicable to any health code, whether you need to use it in LA, they have very strict rules in one way. In Miami, that has a completely different way of looking at it to UK or in Copenhagen. Well, I'm just actually think this is this modular approach is quite powerful. So this is a surprise to me that this is the way you'd go about it. And are you producing the that box? Are they is some of those produced locally, or is it all being produced centrally somewhere in Denmark? We source, of course, some um, different items from flooring to furniture from various parts of the world. But we have a, a you can say, Scandinavian heritage in our design. So a lot of the furniture you'll see are Scandinavian. We have a lot of our warehousing in, in Scandinavia with our partners. And uh, so a lot of it comes from there. And uh, and I think uh, we will continue to really to focus on that Scandinavian heritage as we're right now developing our new design and constantly adjusting the way we build our stores. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so you've found the site. Yeah. What's next? Now we talk through the identification of the new store. We talk through the design and putting yep. everything into a container. The next step, which is, to be honest, probably the most difficult one and that requires most adaption locally is really the architectural work and getting your drawings and permits in place. I think anyone in that and this business will know about how difficult it is. And as an example, in New York, as an example, we can basically pull a permit in five days. In Miami, we should expect three to four months. And you go wow. through a lot of hassle and hoops to get your approval. And uh, and that's a huge work. And there we really rely on our architects and engineers, preferably local to each market. It's very different building a store in Paris than it is in, in, in Miami. And they play a huge part in, in, in the success we have. Okay. So you got your drawings, your permits. Now is it on to build? It's on to build, yeah which of course is most market done for us by external general contractors yep. who we hire for the job, trying to create some partnership with people that know our brand and know to how to deliver the quality we want. But we use, of course, local general contractors. And then until the last step where basically our team comes on board and help assemble everything and get the store ready for opening. And then we pull in the juice. Yeah. And then beautiful store. It's ready to open locally. You've got to market it. You've got to build those connections. How important is that process to the success of an opening? I think the anticipation of an opening is always important. And I think the from we signed the lease till the store opens a couple of months later, we have had pink vinyl all over the windows and been marketing through our channels. So I think there's a lot of excitement. Our team comes on inside. People have been hired for the site. They've been trained in our campus facilities, meaning training grounds for new staff. And we will come in and spend a couple of days setting up the store and preparing for the opening. And basically then we hand the key, keys over to the operation and, and they run it from there. And then a lot of marketing and local outreach begins. Great. Do you as a brand have many different store formats or is it largely a one size fits all model? Is it by and large a consistent concept across all geographies? I think it's uh, to some degree consistent, 
maybe more recognizable, which I think is important when you are a brand, you want to create that brand acknowledgement when you travel that you see that it's a joy, you can recognize the brand. But I would say that we are fairly uh, adaptive and we look a lot at how to use the local space that we're taking. We don't want to build out a tongue over refined glossy box. We want to create something that feels that we've taken a local space in a local neighborhood and we transform that into something that still feels local, right? So we can take anything from 800 square feet to plus 2000 and we can work within airports. Airports is a big part of what we do. We can build lobby locations and we can do more hangout residential location where you are sitting having brunch on, on the weekends. So I think we have an adaptability and our design is also constantly evolving, something that we are working on right now. So that when you see different stores, you hopefully get a different feel. We have different types of seating to play with, different color codes, different bar fronts. We're trying to adjust whether we use high seating, low seating, depending on the type of traffic, whether you're in an airport or in a residential area. So I think we try to provide some of the adjustability, but still keep focus on the core and, and making sure people know that they're entering a Jonah Juice. And how, again, in within the theme of design and build, as you mentioned earlier, you do evolve the brand and how do you get that evolution into into your stores are there little what little tricks can you what how do you keep stores fresh by maybe evolving in some of the new features that you've developed in the latest Mm -hmm. stores yeah well i think there's a couple of things to, to touch upon i think one thing is the evolution of our brand i think it's the brand has probably evolved a bit like the employees behind the company has done. People are getting older, getting more mature, and now people are getting kids. So we went from being maybe the younger teenager where our stores were quite dark in design and the music was louder. It was a little more crunchy, which was yeah. maybe also suitable for the footprint we had back then. We were primarily in Soho in, in London, Soho in New York, in the very urban corridors. Now we are getting into the suburbs. In the UK, you will see us opening up in Guildford, in, in East Dulles in Queen's Park. And I think that has also required us to, to maybe lower the music just a little and brighten up the colors and make it make the atmosphere a bit different. So that's one thing that we've worked a bit on. And I think another aspect, of course, to be able to, even though you built the store, that is a little darker because it was built five years ago. We, we have made things that we can implement later on. We can change the bar fronts. We can quickly change the interior and, and, the, and the colors, but also implemented new things like our app walls. We have around 30% of our sales are digital either from app or delivery. So having a pickup area for those kind of orders, installing new hardware and basically digitizing the entire bar has been a bit of big undertaking from us. Even with the digital screens now, all stores in the UK and US have digital menus, allowing us to adjust the menu throughout the day and really use those digital tools to to advance our offering. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you very much. Pleasure. It was fascinating to hear how Joe and the Juice blends economies of scale and a consistent aesthetic, yet is able to tailor its design to local markets. But the main takeaway from all our guests today is the key to quickly and cost-effectively designing and rolling out new stores, whether it be for a one-off independent or a multinational chain, is to plan out everything as much as possible from the outset, pay close attention to detail and find trusted partners to work with. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show and want to stay informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get access to the latest global reports, coffee news, including the weekly coffee dose. Links are in the show notes. 
This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, James Harper of Filter Productions, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. And this week's song, in collaboration with the Coffee Music Project, is Kicks by Crawford Mack. And until next time, stay safe and stay caffeinated.